Thanks to John, James, Elf, Chris, and Ben for supporting UX Podcast. We really appreciate it. You can support UX Podcast and the UX community too by visiting uxpodcast.com slash support and making a contribution. UX Podcast episode 221. Hello, everybody. Welcome to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. We are your hosts, James Royal Lawson and Per Axbom, with listeners in 189 countries, from Honduras to Qatar. Earlier this year, we met up with Kim Goodwin in Stockholm, as she was doing a talk at From Business to Buttons. And Kim is deservedly framed there as author and design leadership guru. Her must-read book is Designing for the Digital Age, and her talk was on organization as a designed system. In this conversation with Kim, which is kind of a follow-on from our chats we had a year earlier in episode 193, we start with design systems, but move on to critiquing Maslow's pyramid, the ethics of digital, the Nuremberg Code, and independent review boards. We have a brief evaluation of capitalism, and then finishing strong with the two, not one, things you need to be measuring. Design systems are something we're, we're talking about an awful lot as a as a industry at the moment. It is, it is the kind of shiny, hot new thing. Um, but um, you opened your talk today with: Are design systems the best investment? Yes. Are they? I would say design systems are often a good investment, but are they the best investment? Is that where we're going to get the highest rate of return, if you will? Uh, I don't think so in most cases, because when we when you look at the impact on the user experience, the impact on the world, how much difference does it really make that our buttons are consistent and our type sizes are consistent? Yeah, there's some usability improvement. There's a bit of aesthetic improvement that users appreciate. I think design systems are more about making ourselves efficient and uh, making sure that our visual design intent is rendered, at least the way most teams use design systems then they are about really making a fundamental difference for users. So in that respect, I think design systems are kind of about us, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're, yeah. they're very satisfying deliverables mm-hmm. for us because we can say, look mm-hmm. at this thing mm-hmm. that we made, and it feels very concrete and productive, mm-hmm. um, and it's useful, but I'm not sure it's really the biggest mm-hmm. impact we can have. I think you're right about it being about us because I think when I think about work done design systems, it's about making that thing we're trying to grapple with and, and manage more manageable, yes. not just for the users, but for, for us. Yes. For scaling and scaling design systems. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and mainly for us, because we don't know when, when do I deviate from the design system for the benefit of the user. Yeah. Mm. And, and there's nothing wrong with spending some time on our own tools, but mm. uh, the level of effort I see go into some design systems, I think, wow, that's a lot of time to spend obsessing over your own tools. It mm. it reminds me a little bit of the phase where, you remember, personas were the shiny object. Mm. And people were making really extensive use of personas. I mean, I remember one consultant actually built persona living rooms at one of their clients and Ooh. things like this. And oh. I just think, we don't need to gold plate mm. our tools. Mm. We need our tools to accomplish mm. the basics. Mm. But anyway, 
I don't mean to slam design systems. I think they're useful tools. Yeah. I just I think it's a shame when we focus on design systems and spend absolutely no dedicated time on changing how our organizations make decisions, mm-hmm. which has a much bigger impact on the user experience on the world at large. Yeah, and I think that was that was good how you framed this this question um, with what has more impact. So it becomes a prioritization thing. Um, yes, and you, I think you you compared um, design systems or targeted ad- targeted ads, mm-hmm. um, material design in the case of Google, or I think it was the image analysis algorithm. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, uh, Facebook's business model, for example, mm. is probably the most profound impact on its user experience. The fact that everything is about getting you to click more, about getting you to share more data, that is the user experience of Facebook. Mm-hmm. So shouldn't designers be engaged in, is there an alternate business model that might be a healthier relationship between Facebook and, user, mm-hmm. and, and its users? In the case of Google, uh, there's a ton of algorithms that are shaping the user experience. Shouldn't we be concerning ourselves with what exactly are those algorithms doing mm-hmm. and based on what data? that is used to train the algorithm, that creates user experience too. Mm. So you moved it on to decision systems. Yes. What does that mean? Well, what I think that means is, well, I'll explain it as parallel. Mm -hmm. We see design systems as a tool tool kit for designers and developers to make better, more user-centered, mostly visual and occasionally interaction design decisions. So we think of ourselves as the consumers, we think of development teams as the consumers, and sometimes maybe we think of third-party app developers as the consumers of that. So if you think of a decision system as a parallel thing, how do we create components and tools and all of the parts that are necessary to help people across a whole organization make more user-centered, more human-centered decisions? So Think of a decision system as how do we support executives in making choices about revenue models? How do you support the human resources organization in hiring the right kinds of people and creating an employee-centered hiring and and evaluation experience? How do you incent employees focused on values and not just on business metrics? So it's a decision support tool for a lot of different people beyond just us, and that's why I deliberately moved away from the word design. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, to keep to keep that. Oh, yeah. So not not allow it to be something we can point at and say that's what the designers do. Right. Be more. Yeah. I mean, I have often said that you know things like a business model or uh, pricing decisions or policies; those are design mm. decisions mm. in a way. Mm. If if you look at design as the thing that creates the user experience, but I think we just confuse ourselves and other people when we think of all of that as design, because hey, we don't really do that stuff. We claim user experience broadly, but we don't mm-hmm. really cover that ground. And then we start to get into the weird territorial thing of, is everybody a designer or not? Oh, let's just not even go there, right? It just ticks people off. Everybody is creating user experience. That doesn't mean they necessarily have a designer skill set. Mm-hmm. But if we're really about driving user experience, we've got to enable the better decisions for everybody. Mm. And to find the better decisions, you on stage brought up uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and when you did that, I was like, "Oh no, what's she doing?" And then, of course, being you, uh, you went on to critique it because I'm not a fan of it, actually. Uh, and and it's and you critiqued it from the basis that uh, many are saying that it's very westernized and it's about mm-hmm. individuals. Yes. And so it should be more about communities. 
Yeah, I think mm-hmm. you can look at it as an instead of, mm-hmm. or you can look at it as a yes and. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my view, I think there's there's a lot to like in Maslow because it's it basically says when people are concerned about putting food on the table, they're not focused on self-actualization, right? They can't. Mm-hmm. Those fundamental mm-hmm. needs have to be met. And so I think there is some truth to that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the critique uh, that many Native, well, I don't know about many, at least a few Native American scholars have made is that uh, Maslow's too individualistic. It's too focused on just actualizing you. And we can't be actualized as a community and we can't survive as cultures if we're so focused on the individual. Mm-hmm. And self-actualization is important, but community actualization is really more the goal. And I like that construction because what it says is, yes, we are about helping individuals self-actualize, but we can't focus on some individuals and move others away from self-actualization, which mm. I feel is the case with many products. Mm. You know, if you look at uh, a lot of the app business models that are focused on convenient services for those of us who can afford them, are they actually helping the people who provide those services, uh, you know, whether they're Uber drivers or other people, mm. are they helping those people mm. as well? It's got to help everybody in the ecosystem mm. to self-actualize. So uh, I like that construction of it much better than just the individual. Which made it easy, easier, or at least easier for you to uh, employ a model then for thinking about, am I actually moving people towards self, uh, self-actualization? And, and am I taking steps to avoid people moving away from self-actualization? Right. And I like the example of uh, uh, like recruitment systems and applying for a job because I actually hear people today telling me they don't know how to apply for a job because it's all digital now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they just can't do it. So you've just moved a lot of people who were able before to do something, and now mm-hmm. they're not able to do it. Yeah, yeah. And I think that mm. when you have, say, young tech-savvy people designing mm. all these systems, yeah. there's a certain assumption mm. that there's a level of literacy and comfort. And because, look, those of us who work in tech, we're like, please don't make me talk to a human. Can I just mm. do this online? Right? Because probably most of us think that way. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, there's a population of people for whom that's not the natural go-to. Mm. And so how do you enable that? Yeah, no, I, I, I think it is Im- Im- important with the community aspect as well, the, the um, Maslow's needs, that it, is too, it, it drives us too much towards individualism mm-hmm. as, a, as a goal and that we're prepared to sacrifice others on the way to achieving that self-actualization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 I really do like the community aspect too. Um, but you, you mentioned as well the um, Nuremberg Code, talking of... of oh, Nice, light, cheerful yeah. subjects. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and harm to other people right, on their way yeah. up. Um, <laughs> but essentially, we're not the first industry who has ethical dilemmas and concerns. Right, <laughs> no. right. Why don't we learn from others who've gone yeah. before, right? Mm. Medical ethics is a very complex problem. Mm. It's The Nuremberg Code actually works pretty well. It's not mm. perfect, but we don't have to start everything from scratch. The, the Nuremberg Code, or the review boards, and that's, that's an established practice, um, in the in the medical world or the medical research world, but we we're quite a long way off that kind of thing. If it's desirable, even to to, to have a, a a similar review board for for design digital work or design work, mm-hmm. or maybe we should. You're smiling at me as if we maybe should have it already now. In my opinion, we we need it. Mm. I think anybody who is collecting user data, collecting human data, I guess I should correct myself, mm. and anybody who's trying to manipulate behavior, I think we need to put all of that in front of an independent review board. Mm. Uh, because it's very clear that we can't be trusted to police ourselves. There's too many examples. And um, 
there are actually some discussions of that kind of thing being put in place. I think that there are government entities starting to have those discussions, even in the U.S., which is mm. probably going to be the last place to regulate this sort of thing. Uh, so what's interesting about the, the review board model is nobody has said these are exactly all of the detailed things that you can and cannot do in human subjects research because, as we see in the digital world, you can't anticipate all of those issues and uses in a, in a bunch of legislation. And when you try to legislate in the fast-moving technology world, yeah, we know that legislation is always badly conceived and outdated. What the Nuremberg Code does is it says, here's a handful of really important principles. And the review board is a way to say, are we actually being honest with ourselves in how we're interpreting that? Because I think in-house, uh, even when you're a consultant working with a client, it's very easy to sort of delude yourself into thinking that something that's about your needs is really serving user needs. Mm. Oh, yeah, this is going to drive our business model. Yeah, yeah, this helps users. <laughs> right. <laughs> How does it help users? Well, well, it helps users. <laughs> you know? I mean, if we're, yeah. if we're more efficient, then it has to be helpful for them. Right, <laughs> right. And, and you know, somehow us being more profitable is, is good for users, mm. right? Because mm. we can, in theory, offer our services cheaper, but of mm. course we won't. You know, I think that that, that review board keeps us honest. Mm. Um, it's a way to say uh, we're going to hold you accountable, but it's also a way to introduce some flexibility and some real-world translation, right? Because when you have a regulation, you, you can't argue with the nuance, whereas an independent review board will look at things and say, well, okay, I see your intent here. I see why this is good and useful, Let's talk about how we can make it happen. Mm -hmm. and, and they're not necessarily going to just shut you down. Um, and those review boards consist of diverse interests, right? There's, there's uh, people who represent patients. There's people who represent researchers. There's, there's a bunch of different perspectives typically on one of those review boards. And so I think it's a decent combination of, let's call it, clear intent in regulation with human interpretation of flexibility. Mm -hmm. So... It's not perfect, but it's an interesting model to start with, I think. Mm. I mean, is, is a degree of transparency with it as well, or transparency or in what sense? I was just thinking about review boards, and like, I mean, would would we would we want um, any level of transparency with that process? Uh, would reviews happen behind closed doors? I suppose is what I'm trying to say. Well, that's an interesting question, right? So, let's say that you're a pharmaceutical company developing a drug. Mm. There are some details about your drug development process that would be really problematic if they got out into the world. And I think the same is going to be true with tech companies. There are going to be trade secrets involved in some of the decisions that need to be reviewed. Mm. So I think in order to get tech companies to do this kind of thing, there has to be some degree of closed-doorness to it, I think, um, because you, you don't want all of your proprietary business decisions out there in the public record. Mm. But there has to be uh, a degree of trust in that review board, and so I think you know, we need to be specific about how are those constituted? Mm. Um, how independent are they really? How are they paid for uh, without compromising their interests, right? And, and that's, that's an issue in the medical world as well, because if you have an independent review board and you pay it fees to review your projects, um, are they kind of incented to go easy on you? Well, they are a little bit, but, you know, if you have an accreditation process, then... So there are ways around that. It's all a bit bureaucratic and complex, but it largely kind of works. You made some really important points about diversity today, and that would be something that would have to play into the review board. Yes, for sure. Uh, 
because I'm, when you think of a review your review board, you think of people a certain age <laughs> with a certain experience uh, yeah. making these decisions. But that methodology of having people from the outside giving input mm-hmm. must be there. Right. And I think, you know, diversity plays into making better decisions in a couple of ways. Mm-hmm. One is if the team generating the concepts is not that diverse, then you're going to have a bunch of flaws built in from the outset mm-hmm. uh, and a bunch of privileged assumptions based on, you know, education, income, gender, all sorts of things. But there's never going to be a team that's diverse enough to cover all the bases. Mm-hmm. And so I think we always need to have a mechanism to go out and listen to people other than ourselves. And I don't just mean the review board. You know, I'm talking about mm. making sure we get good, diverse recruiting in our user research mm. initially. And also, you know, the, there are people talking about things like consequence scanning and can we identify potential mm. negative consequences. You need to involve some outside people in that and mm. say, hey, other people help us figure out what could go wrong here. Mm. Uh, because there's a bunch of stuff companies put out. I look at that and I think, yeah, if there had been a woman in the room, even one, mm. yeah, that wouldn't have made it out the door, mm. right? If there had been a person of color in the room, they would have been really suspicious of that, like everyone I know. Um, so some of these things I think are very avoidable. But, yeah, you're not going to get every possible life experience or interest represented in any team. No, I think that's, that's definitely the case when we're, we're dealing with when we're talking about um, um, global products. Um, oh, there's, definitely. There's, what, 200, mm-hmm. 200 plus countries um, yeah. uh, implied 200 plus cultures right. um, on top of the, the, the Western mm-hmm. um, I- ideas of, co- of different um, yeah. um, people that we've got. Mm. Um, that becomes then yeah. really difficult to manage. For sure. Well, and, you know, I see some of that beginning to evolve. I think more companies are realizing, for example, that you can't just design a product in the United States and assume mm. it's going to work in, you know, India and China and Kenya you have to actually have local teams designing yeah. for those cultures yeah. in many cases because yeah. there's just so much context that I'm sorry, a Western design team dropping into, <laughs> you know, East Africa for a couple of weeks yeah. to do ethnographies. Eh, mm-hmm. Good luck with that. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's still going to be, it's still going to have their kind of filter put on it and there's it's going to come out the other end. You're still going to get colonial anyway. garbage layered on top of yeah. everything, yes. right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> There is a journey. There's a journey there as well. For we, we've gone kind of like too far too quick before, and we've gone global. Yes. And we're having all these issues and problems. Yeah. And now we're going to realize, all right, how do we back off from being a global product? Yeah. A little bit, so we can actually start to reflect and and, and maybe adjust to to, yeah. to yeah. localizations in a more healthy way. Yeah. And that's difficult when you're a, a Facebook who's got right. his foot on the pedal and is earning mm. as much money as it is. Right. Already. Mm. Uh, yeah, the profit model is a, is a tricky one, mm. right? Money is addictive. Mm-hmm. Got to make it somehow. Mm. Keeps you going as a company. Mm. But I, I think that we're so focused on moving that profit number. Look, I think the hardest part of this whole thing is it, it's fundamentally capitalism, right? There's no room for a soul in capitalism as it's currently conceived in the world. I think it's very hard to be a corporate leader with stockholders and say, hey, guys, we're going to make some decisions that make you less money. That's very difficult to do. I actually saw someone uh, preparing for an IPO. I forget the company name, but they had their prospectus out. And one of the things that they actually put in it was, we intend to be a principle-driven company. And so sometimes we are going to make values-based decisions that reduce our profitability and investors need to be aware of that risk. Mm Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that's a good start. You know, let's let's have more companies take that stance. It's very difficult to do, though. 
lots of CEOs would get fired for doing that in existing public companies. Yeah, I mean, I, I we've, we've discussed on my have mm-hmm. discussed the the capitalism side of thing. I, I normally defend capitalism by saying, well, yeah. um, uh, shareholder ownership is part of the solution. Though well, the one of the big issues we had is share in share owner has been so concentrated mm-hmm. in such a few bodies or banks or institutions yeah. whereas if we had share ownership on a much more individual level much more widespread then you have activism you can you, you open the door to activism um, uh, on an individual level maybe but, oh, but yeah, maybe. Th- theoretically it sounds quite nice but yeah. in practice we've still got the fact that you know how do you get how do you include the the lower ends of society maybe the less wealthy right. s- end of society right. how do you get them to understand the the benefit of investing that few dollars maybe they have over if they have any dollars right. over in the company and and those people that you're talking about don't have the education no. or the time yeah. to be activist mm. shareholders mm. so I, I, that sounds good in theory i think it's an optimistic interpretation of the, the ability of the masses to do that mm. um I agree with you about the concentrated ownership being a problem. I don't know how you rein in capitalism unless it's government. And there are lots of reasons that lots of people don't trust government, Mm. sometimes with good reason. But, uh, yeah, some part of making tech more humane is going to be dependent on governments. Mm. It just is. Companies are not going to do this on their own. Capitalism is not going to do it for us. So I think if we're really wanting to make better user experiences in the world, I think we have to be active as citizens, not just as mm. designers. Yes. But I think that's, uh, that, that is mm. essentially why I, I say what I do about share ownership, because um, you know, we have votes, and, if, and governments, I think, are part of the solution, mm-hmm. and we vote the governments in. Uh, but I think also that we won't be able to pivot from capitalism if we need to pivot from capitalism mm. as quick as possibly we need to. Mm-hmm. Whereas today, those of us who do have the interests and the uh, awareness and even the resources can go out there sure. and make a make make a change by buying into some of these companies who want to change yeah so I, I, as usual you know yeah. there's, there's a mix yeah. of things yeah. I, I feel a whole new episode here <laughs> <laughs> on capitalism yes. <laughs> yeah I mean I, I, I'm not saying oh my gosh capitalism is evil we must crush it of course not that's ridiculous but I think that all things in moderation right yeah there is no moderation to capitalism right now mm. we're over optimizing to the profit metric just as Facebook is mm. over optimizing to the engagement metric and in real life we never optimize to only one thing. That is not how we make healthy decisions in our lives. We're always making a trade-off. There's always something that provides a boundary on our behavior. Mm. And I don't feel like we have that right now mm. in the business world. Oh. Yeah. I think that, that brings us probably nicely into the, the you, you said towards the end of the talk about always measuring two things. Yes. And, and the obvious one is, is, the, is the thing you're actually trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. What's the other one? the thing you're not willing to sacrifice to get to that thing. So we're always trying to achieve some business outcome. Usually it goes back to profit. Uh, you know, Sometimes the, the metric is sort of an, a leading indicator of profit. So we're always trying to accomplish something for the sake of the business, but there's always a trade-off. We're always losing something when we crank up that metric. Mm. If we crank it to a certain point, maybe we don't lose anything noticeable, but there's... There's a point at which it starts to stress other aspects of the user experience, uh, whether that's we're introducing more privacy risk or, uh, you know, we're, we're just degrading the experience. Think about the ad model in, uh, in online newspapers, for example. There's a point at which you put so many ads in there that the paper is literally unreadable. You have mm-hmm. completely destroyed your user experience. 
there are publications I just will not visit online mm-hmm. because it's just too bad. Clearly, you've over-optimized for that, that metric. So you need to look at some different approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, but companies aren't measuring that trade-off decision. They're not measuring the thing that is ultimately going to be problematic for them in the long run. Um, so I guess I think of it as uh, it's like the trade-off we all make professionally. We can pour all of ourselves into work, but at some point our health starts to degrade, our mental health or our physical mm. health or both. Mm. And you know what? The job isn't always going to be there. We only have one life. Mm. And I feel like we have to find a way to introduce that balance in our work, too. And right now we're very focused on uh, on the productivity metrics and not on the long-term health metrics. And that's that's the thing we need. And. I have no illusions that designers are going to necessarily solve that on our own, mm. but I think it's a conversation we need to be part of yeah. and starting to introduce that where we have a friendly ear in an organization. Mm. Uh, and metrics are one way to do that, right? We don't have to say, hey, we need to rethink capitalism and <laughs> nobody's <laughs> going to have that conversation with us at work, right? But I, I think what we can do is we can say, look, we want to optimize for this metric. Mm. We're worried about what might happen if we over-optimize for mm. it. What do you think if we measure this other thing alongside it? We don't have to have that bigger, deeper conversation. We can just start to introduce the metrics. And those are probably conversations most of us can have. And uh, I think that's a good starting point because then the trade-offs will start to become apparent to other people. And it will be the metric doing the talking instead of us whining about, Mm -hmm. oh, we're degrading Mm -hmm. the user experience Mm -hmm. in a way that isn't really evident to people who are not focused on it. So it's a way of making the sacrifices more visible to the decision makers. Exactly. And, you know, if you can put a number on something, Mm. it feels much more real to many stakeholders. Mm. Uh, Whereas right now, there's a lot of designers saying, yeah, I don't think we should keep pushing on this because look at what's happening to the user experience. And that's viewed as a matter of opinion. Mm. Other Mm. people might say, oh, I think our user experience is still fine. Mm. No, it's not fine. But we don't tend to measure these things, A, because we don't spend time thinking about them. But they're also harder to measure than more automated metrics are, Mm. right? Because the values that you're not willing to sacrifice are usually not things you can measure with click-throughs and and other things like that that you can just instrument. You actually have to ask people. Mm. And that means you need some mechanism to go out and say, hey, how are you feeling about this? And I don't mean net promoter. I mean detailed, (laughs) actionable metrics that say, hey, how connected do you Mm. feel to other people Mm. after using this? And and this is where, again, drawing on the, the healthcare world, um, if you are developing a drug, there's ways that you can scientifically ask people questions about the impact of it that are viewed as medical evidence and that actually hold weight scientifically. Mm. Uh, and we should be using that same level of rigor in what we're doing with our products because, frankly, it's an interventional study mm. and, and we need to up our game when, we, when it comes to understanding the impact of what we're doing. Yeah, we're, we're doing effectively doing medical trials on the world population mm. Um, in fact, we're literally doing medical trials mm. in some cases, mm. right? If there's increasing evidence that a lot of internet usage is yeah. increasing depression and suicidality in people, mm. no joke. Uh, so we're definitely intervening in people's health, mm. and we need to be a lot more responsible about that. Which, on the positive side, means that we can learn from a lot of other industries that have already gone through these issues. Right, yeah. right. You know, on the optimistic side, since we've gotten rather dark in this conversation, <laughs> <laughs> on the optimistic side, yeah. I think it, it speaks to the power mm. of what we are doing. You know, the fact that we can induce depression and suicidality also means 
maybe we can induce positive things in people's yes. lives as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so behavior change is inherently evil. If you look at, say, some of the fitness trackers and so on that are helping people change habits to be healthier, mm-hmm. that's behavioral intervention too. It just happens to be beneficial behavioral mm-hmm. intervention. Um, so I think we need to figure out how do we make sure that behavioral intervention actually is beneficial? How do we put some checks mm-hmm. and balances in there um, so that we are using using our power for good, so mm. to speak. Thank you for sitting down with us, Kim. Sure, my pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. You know, I think if we as an industry had the opportunity to, an, to elect a leader, I'd cast my vote for Kim. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I would definitely vote for Kim. Uh, I mean, listening back to this interview now, some months after we actually did it as well, and just hearing everything, just remembering the state at first that we were in when we were listening to her and her responses and listening it back to it now, just confirming that she's one of the few people you can actually pose really complex questions and she has an extremely coherent answer for every each and every one of them and they all seem so obvious. It's like, but people have been thinking about these things for years and they're still trying to figure them out but you ask Kim and she has them figured out or at least she can... She can uh, express the answers in such a way that you understand the complexity, you understand the nuances, and you realize that we have to forge ahead anyway with the information that we have on hand. Yeah. I think I think we actually had mm. a similar kind of reflection uh, when we talked to her mm. last in um, episode 192. Uh, I think I said 193 mm. in the beginning. It's 192. But, uh, but yeah, Kim's, Kim's wonderful at articulating complex things. Um, in response to even to complex answers mm-hmm. like we posed to, I think. Um, but uh, picking on some of the the points that we raised, I, 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 I really like the idea of some kind of review board. Oh yeah. Um, I th- Kim says we need them. I think we need them, um, and we wouldn't be the first industry to have um, an independent review board. But um, but getting there um, mm. is complex and creates. Um, a lot of additional challenges we mentioned in the chat there about um, how do you, you know, how do you ensure they're independent and how do you regulate how they're paid how do you recruit them you know how, how do you control the incentive mm. side of, of being part of a review, review board um, and and another thing we mentioned there uh, mentioned was the need for accreditation yep. to be allowed into the review board that in itself just that one word <laughs> is an entire can of worms how do we then accredit people as designers so they can be part of an independent review board, so they can then review design yeah. decisions, things that we're doing in a way that's, that's safe, in a way that's good, healthy, um, and successful. That's true. And I, th- I think what Kim is doing here, she's sort of showing us that's a good goal to have. And she's, of course, also aware that it's not going to happen overnight. So... Our challenge then is to figure out what are the tiny, small steps that we can take towards achieving that goal. What is the path we need to take now? Just when I when I talk about these things, I usually uh, tell people to have like have every quarter have a meeting around these things, talk about them, make them top of mind, because you need to at least to have some sort of routine in talking about these issues about harming people, about storing their data, about manipulation uh, and those risks. If, because if you're not having a conversation, then you're losing, well, people are being harmed, essentially. 
but just start having that conversation and realizing, okay, so how can we make that even more formalized and towards the review board, but not, well, as it, as it would be over several years before we get there, I guess. Mm. And I think, um, you know, when you, when you balance those balances um, of business and, and, and users, or I, I suppose Kim said the two things was um, measuring the thing you're trying to achieve and then measuring the thing you're not willing to sacrifice to get there. Oh yeah, that's powerful. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but but kind of building on from that a little bit is is if we say that we're not willing to harm users in order to get there, to be um, you know generalizing that mm. second thing to measure, then then that I suppose allows you then to be empowered. If you say that's a that's a real crucial thing for you, mm. not causing harm, then that allows you to be empowered to weight things that help or benefit or m- uh, reduce harm. Mm. Um, you can weight them slightly higher than some business aspects when you can, when you're kind of like creating a, if you've got two things you're trying to decide, which one do we do first? Mm. Then you kind of give a few extra points to the thing that reduces harm. Exactly. Compared to the thing that generates more revenue. Very difficult to, um, I think to, to get buy-in from higher up, but um, it's not all the time we have to get everything signed off higher up. We actually have no, exactly not all the time. You have to get things signed off, but also you can just just mapping it out shows people, okay, so we won't choose the one that harms the least. Fine, but at least we know that now, and we have to stand by it because we have we have it on paper and we put it up mm-hmm. on the wall over here. And so just having that conversation is what is going yeah. to make. And most of us work in teams and and work in in. In constellations and groups, communities, you could say, within organizations where we can exert quite a bit of power mm. in our little inner circle to make some of these decisions. We do a, kind of like spend 10 more minutes on that thing rather than that thing. Maybe it isn't noticeable. Maybe it yeah. doesn't cause kind of like you know, business decisions, but it might make an actual difference um, at the other side. And for me, that ties well back to what she was saying in the beginning of the interview about design systems and what are we spending our time on? Are we spending our time on things that promote us as designers or are we spending time that help the people we are trying to help with our designs? Uh, And we need to find the better balance. I think her reasoning around uh, doing one thing at the expense of another or over-optimizing for the profit metric even, like over-optimizing for one thing and not finding a balance. That's a really huge important point I think people need to start reflecting on yeah and even though i've just mm. we've just been discussing ways in which maybe you could practically do something now because some of the um the bigger changes will take time and are complex um mm. kim did say um, facebook's for example facebook's business model uh, is is yeah. the one single thing that impacts the user experience of users the, um, the most um <laughs> yes <laughs> so 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 these kind of like micro mm. things you're changing here mm. and there no you're just kind of Ah, you're just scrying in the sta- sand a little bit. You're not actually uh, making the, the, the big changes. Yeah, completely agree. Please subscribe to the show if you don't already. Our entire collection of episodes is available on Spotify and on the website. And as a suggestion of what to listen to next, apart from episode 192 and and even um, the episode, the first time we talked to um, Kim, um, which oh god, what number is that? That was that was even one ninety. Oh, the first time. First time that was ninety three back in oh 20, twenty fifteen. Twenty fifteen. Mm-hmm. Um, but apart from those two, um, 
part of episode 56, we talked to Natalie um, Nahai about cultural abil- culturability, I think is the phrase she used at the time, and, and interla- internationalization. Um, this was, oh, this cool. was so, over six years ago we had this chat, but it ties in. <laughs> ties in it's relevant to um to what kim was talking about as well with internationalization internationalization and backing off from that and reflecting and and local Mm. people doing local things remember to keep moving see you on the other side many economists does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know, James. How many economists does it take to change a light bulb? None. They're all waiting for the unseen hand of the market to correct the lighting disequilibrium. <laughs>